Welcome to Extra AI, your podcast series on machine learning and AI applications. Yes, you're right. Extra AI, X-T-R-A-W-A-I.com. And this is your host, Raghu Banda. And as always, uh, we will be talking on different topics around AI. As you all know, we are ending another year, 2022. And if we just recap... We have done quite a few different sessions in this year 2022 across three different seasons. We are now in the season four and we are doing our podcast seven in season four. The overall podcast number is 37. So in this year, we accomplished, we finished season two, we finished season three and we started season four. We went across different topics and we talked with different guests within SAP, outside of SAP, different uh, guests from partner organizations. And also we talked about with different founders from different startups in the space of AI. Today's session, I have invited a guest and this is one of those interesting topics which is very dear to my heart, which is about how do we combat misinformation or disinformation. Yes, we all know nowadays there is a lot of information flowing around in the internet and now we have also entered into this realm of uh, blockchain technologies, metaverse and so on and so forth. So we are also transitioning from these web 2.0 technologies to the web 3.0 technologies. We hear a lot and of course uh, we also see a lot of information being available there for the end user i think sometimes we also feel uh, is all the information that i have uh, been reading uh, is there any kind of uh, misinformation or disinformation and we have different social media applications as well like the facebooks instagram whether it is google or a lot of other spaces it's, it, it is that there is a lot of information out there. How do we dissect this information um, and understand which is the right information, misinformation and disinformation? That is the key topic that we will be discussing today. I would not go further details into, the, into that aspect because in the context of our conversation, we will be going into those details. So today I've invited one guest uh, who is the CEO and founder of Consensus, an, an app or an application. And similar lines of um, Google on how they are redefining search and, and how you could leverage search in the personalized space, which falls between a, a validated search from experts and also how you can provide this validated results to the end users. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. As always, you will find more information at the end of our podcast. All right, uh, welcome back to our uh, podcast series, Extra AI, uh, podcast series around machine learning and AI. So today I have a interesting guest, Mr. Eric Olson from Consensus. I would uh, ask Mr. Eric to provide a brief introduction. Of course, he comes from a background of uh, predictive analytics and machine learning. He has done his master's in Northwestern University. But before I speak about him, I would like Eric to talk about him in much more detail. And then we will get into the details of our conversation today. Over to you, Eric. Awesome. Yeah, th thank you for having me. Uh, so like, as you mentioned, my my professional and academic background is in data science. Um, I got my master's from Northwestern in data science or technically predictive analytics, which is just a fancy word for data science. Uh, and then I professionally worked at uh, DraftKings, which is a sports betting, sports entertainment company based in Boston. Um, I worked in the data science department there. Um, did all sorts of interesting things using machine learning. Most notably, I owned our our player skill profiling. So basically taking all of our user bet and behavior data, running machine learning through it, and 
making predictions on the skill levels of our customers to then make decisions on how we wanted to treat them. Um, I got to own that from coming up with the idea of how to do it, to actually building the model, to also operationalizing the outputs. So it taught me a lot about the entire um, you know, life cycle of a machine learning product. And then last summer, I, I quit that job and, and came full-time uh, to Consensus. Uh, and what Consensus is, is a new search engine uh, that uses artificial intelligence to find people answers in peer-reviewed literature. Uh, came up with this idea actually many, many years ago, uh, basically with the problem statement that uh, you know this is the type of question and subject matter that Google does the worst at. Uh, mm-hmm. And Google is not designed to let us know what the research says and what the experts think about our questions. And there's no easy way to do that. I loved consuming manually curated content like that, where like a scientist would go on a podcast to write a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, got so much value out of that. And that's all well and good and has its place, but it's manually curated. It's unscalable. It's not on demand. You have to wait for them to hopefully write about or talk about the topics you're interested in. And I had this deep desire to be able to quickly ask questions and learn what the research says about them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, fast forward seven, six, six, seven years. And uh, it was really the culmination of three things that led us to start to work on it. One, I actually had some of the skills to do it after working professionally at production level uh, machine learning. Um, two was the COVID pandemic and it coming very much in our faces that uh, there was a demand for something like this and people were, were had a thirst for good quality scientific information. And then last uh, really is that the advent of these language models and how far AI specifically in the text processing world had come in a realization that this problem was solvable only as of a year or two ago. Uh, and the culmination of all that uh, led myself and my partner to decide to start working on it last year. Amazing. Amazing journey, uh, Eric. I like the way you have put it. And um the fact that you have started this during the COVID pandemic kind of uh, connects a few things with me across because I myself have uh, written a book during the COVID time and trying to understand the different customer behavior and user behavior. But of course, I was coming from SAP background. But the topic that today's topic that we are trying to talk about, it's very interesting. Uh, It is, uh, it's very close to my heart as well because we, do see there is a lot of um, conversations going on, if I may say, about misinformation or disinformation across different channels. And how do you combat that? And I believe uh, with your uh, background working in the sports entertainment industry and then starting on this uh, journey with consensus, I believe we'll have a great conversation. Uh, So... Like always, before I ease into the main topic of uh, the today's conversation, I come up with a teaser question. I think people try to answer it in different ways. Maybe I'll try to put this in two different ways. You can pick up one of them. Maybe you could explain one particular machine learning task or scenario, which we as people have not been doing much in the past, but Nowadays, we idealistically, we do a lot and we do not even know that we have been using machine learning, which means that the journey has come a long way. Either that or maybe the other question I have is, what is that one particular topic which you are intrigued a lot in the current sphere of things happening? Maybe that or the first question, either way, so that we can kickstart our conversation. So just so I'm clear, the the first question is, where is a particular task or domain that machine learning and AI has been, and we're now just seeing it pop up more in our faces? I I, I guess I don't fully understand the the question. Is that basically what you're asking? Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, So I think one of the most this doesn't fully hit the bullseye on what you're asking, but it's an interesting anecdote. And I think it does to some extent. I think one of the most interesting things we're seeing happen in AI recently is generative artificial intelligence. So, so uh, AI that takes in prompts and then will generate text. 
And I think one of the most interesting things we're seeing is where that's happening first and where we're starting to see companies pop up that are using that technology. I think it's a little bit counterintuitive to what we originally expected. So what we're seeing, you know, the biggest NLP companies that are, are popping up now, um, the, the two biggest names are probably Jasper AI and Copy AI. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they take in prompts and they will generate you marketing copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they help you write ads or short blog posts or blog titles or social media posts. And it's basically, you can say, hey, I want to write a short ad, Instagram ad to advertise my uh, new supplement brand. And then they'll generate you a bunch of different examples of that that you can now choose from and iterate on. And what's so interesting about that is, you know, if you had asked people a number of years ago where AI and machine learning is likely to uh, come last for people's jobs, people would always default to these more subjective creative tasks. Uh, But it's been quite the opposite, especially in the NLP world. Uh, that's actually where it's going first. And, you know, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen Dale on Twitter. Um, it generates art images and people are using that to create ads and sell art that they're just, it is fully AI generated. And it's quite the opposite of what we thought was going to happen. And, um, I think there's some interesting reasons why, um, I think one of them is that the more subjective the outputs of these systems are, the more e- the easier it is to build products that do them because there aren't necessarily right and wrong answers. Like there isn't a wrong way to write a blog post or a wrong way to generate marketing copy or a wrong way to generate an art image. It's just layers of subjectivity. So it actually allows for this interesting, like interesting sandbox for these models to play in where the, the grading curve on the outputs isn't quite the same and it allows, uh, allows for these systems to be built. And then the other part of it is Uh, the availability of the training data. So Mm -hmm. when you're doing something like uh, image generation, you have the entire internet of images and captions to scrape and build your gigantic training sets. And the more targeted and custom you would try to build uh, an AI NLP engine, the less that becomes true, where you have to generate the training data yourself, which requires lots of thoughtful design, manual work, yada, yada, yada. Uh, So I think in summary, um, one of the most interesting and counterintuitive things that has happened with AI, specifically natural language processing, has been uh, where the first giant companies and useful applications have popped up in these more subjective domains uh, that I think is counterintuitive to what people would have thought. Perfect. Perfect. I like the way that you have put in the analogy that you have taken, like uh, what we have thought and what is happening with the current advancements in the natural language processing. I agree what you're uh, what you're saying. I think uh, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, so Eric, uh, maybe what we will do, we'll take a quick break and then come back and continue our conversation or get into the main meat of our today's conversation. Sounds great. All right, welcome back. So now um, let us get into today's topic of our conversation about uh, how do we combat misinformation or disinformation in this in this age of fast changing or digital disruptions happening all across the globe. I know, I know, we find a lot of uh, information online, but how can so there is there is this question right that going across people how can the users online on the internet trust information what they find online do you want to take up that question eric and maybe put your thoughts around that totally yeah it is my belief and our company's belief that the information crisis that we're all in and everyone's aware of uh, has much more to do with broken systems, not broken people. Uh, and what I mean by that is the systems that we use to consume our information, whether it's social media or Google, um, every single one of them has a unified business model. Uh, 
uh, where they care about selling advertisements. They make their money off advertisements. Um, that sets up a line of incentives for those companies to care most about engagement and clicks and eyeballs and time spent. Uh, and what that leads to is a prioritization of popular and engaging content. Problem being, that speaks nothing to reputability and rigor of content, which is why, you know, misinformation can sometimes be the most engaging content. And it isn't even something intentional by these companies. Like this isn't some group of people in a back room wearing suits saying, hey, we're going to misinform America. It's not what's happening. It's just a company that is following his incentives and is trying to make them the most money possible. And uh, the algorithms sometimes end up recommending uh, very poor sources of information because it has learned that that is what is engaging. And that's as simple as what's happening. Uh, and unless those systems change, nothing else will change. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, when so much money is to be made and they're making so much money hand over fist, the likelihood of changes happening within those places, in our opinion, is very small. Uh, there are small things to be done to AAA it. And like I commend Google on some things they've done where um, where there is a unified consensus on something, they they do put their hand on the scale a little bit and restrict. Like if you type in uh, climate change things onto Google, it used to be a whole lot of crap information. Uh, they now have basically scrubbed that and said, there's a consensus that we know that climate change is caused by humans. It's a real thing. And they make sure that the only content that they surface is uh, backing that up. But you know that's unscalable and that's, that's just like manual intervention. Um, so... If the companies themselves that created these problems aren't going to solve the problem, um, we think there needs to be disruption from the outside. Uh, and there need to be systems that will exist that allow for many of the same delightful experiences that those products have, the ease of use, the intuitive nature of them, uh, but are done with a different business model with specialized tasks. And that's the lane that we're trying to occupy. Uh, we think that Google will actually get disrupted now that these language models can do specific things better than Google. Mm -hmm. And you can marry that specific task with a private search. And then we actually will have a chance to have real adoption of some of these products and be able to have them operate with different business models. So privatized subscription, premium search, premium social media that is paid for that allows us to get away from these systems that you know invariably create misinformation again not because of even the people not because of people on both ends it's just the way the systems are set up people aren't going out of their way they're not trying to be misinformed and people at facebook aren't trying to misinform you it just is the reality of what happens the downstream effects of the incentives apply so basically what you're saying eric is that the algorithms are not are designed in such a way that if there is some kind of virality going on, virality going on on particular item or on particular thing, which people are watching it more and more, or if there is some kind of a term which is being used more and more, whether that is true or not, that is the one which is taking much more a hit count. And that is the one which is being yeah. positioned a lot more rather than providing the alternate side of the things, meaning, uh, of course, if there is some particular thing going on, it might be wrong. But the thing is that you're not providing suggestions about what else you could do, but rather than going ahead and showing more of this kind of content. Is that what you're in, uh, intending to say? Yeah, it, I think that that's pretty well said. Yeah, it's the, the simplest version of it is um, yeah, if what, what is prioritized is what is engaging and what is popular, like you just said. Mm -hmm. And that speaks nothing to reputability. Uh, it sometimes can, but it's correlated, not causal, right? The, the fact that something is popular does not make it inherently reputable or true. Uh, and unfortunately, it can be negatively correlated in some ways. And sometimes inflammatory, engaging content uh, is more likely to be incorrect misinformation and uh you know the again the, these are algorithmic systems and they're looking to make predictions on what is going to be clicked on and what is going to be engaging for that user and many times that turns out to be bad information so then the problem is not only with the algorithm but also the problem with the data 
right? Because the data, you, you are showing some particular kind of uh, search or some particular kind of information based on the algorithm that is available and based on the, the data that is available. But so the problem is not just with the algorithm, but also with the data. But then how do you... Um, try to correct that or how do you what are your thoughts around that meaning how can you make it better yeah and yeah i mean you're totally right i think that's well said um i mean the algorithm is only as good as the data that goes into it but the algorithm's uh outcome metric is clickability engagement but then the data that goes into it is what people are clicking and what are engaging in, which is, uh, you know, also flawed, right? So like it kind of meshes together to create a flawed system. How do you make it better is you have to start with a different outcome that your North Star is. So you can't be designed like the, the, the algorithms are optimizing for engagement and uh, click through and time spent, right? That can't be your uh, your North Star when you're talking about trying to deliver good information. Right, the North Star has to be good information, reputability of the source, correctness of the answer, satisfaction of the answer. Uh, so you need to you need to redesign the North Star metric that the algorithms are optimizing for, uh, regardless of what the downstream data is. Like your users could still, and, and that's why when we build our system, we don't use user click data to prioritize rankings. We don't retrain our models based on what people are clicked on. I don't know why people are clicking on it. They might click on it because they think it's completely wrong and they want to learn more. They might click on it because, yeah, something stood out that was weird about it or whatever. Who knows why they clicked on it? That is not how we want to train our algorithms. We want to train, we train our algorithms by having experts annotate questions and answer pairs. And we have the experts say, what is the mo what is best answering this question? We then feed that to a model to learn how to rank bits of information. So we don't want to use, so basically well, saying all this to say, you need to change your North Star metric and you can't be caring about just the clickability, the, the likelihood of something being clicked or engaged with, because that is uh, going to end up optimizing for the wrong things. Okay. So what you're saying is that rather than going on the click stream of what is and showing up the information out, you'll be focusing more on these expert-related questions or expert-related uh, outputs so that you can show a better results. But when you say this, are you going to validate these experts? Or they, is there some kind of a validation process or a verification process going on behind the scenes? Uh, yeah. Meaning, are these experts uh, real users or it can also be bots or machine or some kind of uh, machine learning uh, services out there yeah so uh it is all done by humans so they create the data set then trains the model how to then sort answers they are all phds uh and then the way that we quality check it is we have 10 people do each potential result so we have all these different opinions ranking possible answers to questions and then we take the consensus of them uh we take the you know the the, the inner annotator agreement uh and then we use all that that giant data so we've created to feed that to a large language model to then train it how to sort results how to take a question possible answers and decide what is the best answer uh so it's all done by humans they are all experts themselves and we have many people do all the same questions so that we have a varied set of opinions and come out to some, you know, quote unquote consensus. And it isn't about answering one particular question. It's about training a model to learn how to surface information. So we're not, you know, this is not, they don't do an annotation of a question and then that becomes hard coded in the product. That isn't what's happening. It is to train the model to learn how to put together these patterns, how to make decisions of ranking answers. Mm -hmm. So while you start with these expert sessions or expert related questions which are put together by the experts, at some point of time, the machine learning models or the machine learning services will take over and then they can learn based out of these different questions that are framed by these experts and then your models are built based out of that. Rather than building the models 
just based out of the data that is being pushed in or the clickstream data. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. So now going a bit one step back, I want to understand when you're talking about um, the experts, how they are working on and building these, um, framing these questions or um, uh, because they are the backbone of uh, your modeling techniques. And like you initially mentioned, there are many different language models out there. And this is where in future, I think there is a high possibility of even Google getting disrupted because now there are many language models out there. Could you talk a bit around that? Uh, because I think this is a concept or this is one of those things might warrant a bit more information or a bit more thoughts around what you're saying. Uh, so what is the, the the root of the question here? Like what models we're using and what is available? Yeah. Yeah, so the root of the question here is that you said that these experts are the ones who are based out of these experts, we are basing and building these models. And these are again built based out of, now there are a lot of different language models out there, yeah. which means that these language models have a lot of experts connected. So few things like yeah. if you can, yeah. Got it. So. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll take a step back and kind of explain how you tune language models to do specific things and what is available out there to do that. So the way these large language models work, generally speaking, is they come to you with some pre-trained knowledge. So they are shown this giant corpuses of text across the internet. So they come with some latent contextual knowledge of language. Uh, it is similar to the way that humans learn to do tasks where they, you know, if I'm about to teach you to do something, you don't come as this blank slate. You come with some knowledge of previous tasks where now you can more easily put together patterns and learn how to do things. Language models are pretty similar. They are shown this, these giant corpuses of text across the internet, depending on the language model, it's different corpuses, it's different sizes. GBT4 is about to come out and it's like trillions of parameters and it's been shown trillions of, of uh, words and articles. Uh, GBT-3 is billions, then there's even smaller ones that are millions, uh, and that is all the pre-training that it is given. Then they can actually be done uh, a further pre-training. There's some technical word for it. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's effectively slightly uh, more targeted, but it's still pre-training, so not for a specific task, but it mm -hmm. can be pre-training for a specific domain. So in our case, one of the models we use is a BERT-based model, which is one of Google's large language models, mm -hmm. and it is called Biomed Roberta. So it is a slight variation on BERT. Roberta just means more robust BERT. And then Biomed means that it was then pre further pre-trained on some medical literature. So it was just shown a bunch of medical literature. So now it has more context about the jargon used in those types of documents. So that's where it comes to you. So now that's where it comes to us. It has come to that pre-trained knowledge. Then you can what's called fine tune them. And you can give them specific training data to learn how to do specific tasks. So you give it inputs and desired outputs. Mm -hmm. uh, in our case, it's just like a classification task where it's extracting information from documents. So it is given ones and zeros next to sentences to learn how to identify the ones within papers and pull those out. Uh, in GPT-3's case, which is better at generative tasks, you can give it prompt desired output. You give it thousands of examples. It now will learn how given a prompt, given something being said to it, it will learn how we want it to respond to us based on that fine-tuned data that we've given it. Uh, and that's basically how companies like us come in. You fine-tune these models to do specific tasks for you with your own custom-built, thoughtfully designed, training annotated training data. For us, that was the annotated data we created with the scientists, and we're using Biomed Roberta to do that for us, which is a, yeah, a slightly smaller, similar. It's it's different than GPT-3, that it's smaller, and it's a little bit better actually at these classical data science tasks, where GPT-3 is a little bit better at uh, these generative tasks. Mm -hmm. Did that answer your question? Yes, yes, that definitely answered the question. Now, I have a follow-up to that question uh, in a different way. We know that, yeah. um, that there is 
yeah, now much of these libraries or much of the information is already available on the World Wide Web. Uh, you could search it the fingertip of your by searching using Google or any other tools. So, so what I mean to say is that there is a lot of this scientific research is already available online. But now, I I, I agree where you are coming in from. Like this scientifically explored way of uh, identifying the questions and then identifying the topics and building the models. When there is a lot of scientific research already available, why do we still need a different kind of a search engine for that? Yeah, great question. So there's there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. One of the reasons we needed to start at this one far end is what is currently available to search literature. Uh, there are the Google Scholars of the world, the PubMeds of the world, which are traditional academic search engines that are built over repositories of scientific papers, much like we are. The main difference is uh, there's very, very minimal advanced functionality. Uh, there are interfaces and products that haven't really changed in decades. Uh, you keyword hack them. Uh, there's no contextual data. They don't do any advanced analysis. They don't pull out any information. They give you a bunch of links to papers. Um, that might be fine for some people do who are you know very versed in those products who have spent their lives going through research know how to work them perfectly. That's very much not a good solution for the vast majority of the world that is more used to the other end of the spectrum, the Googles of the world, which are nice, uh, intuitive, friendly built consumer products. Uh, and they're great in their own right for certain things. If you want to ask, what is the weather tomorrow? Or what are some flower shops near me or how many people live in Europe, you should keep using Google for that. That is really, really good at those questions. And it's an amazing product and experience for that. But it is not designed to get you that information that you would be trying to get from an academic search engine. So there's this giant gap in the middle that we're trying to occupy that is take those really intuitive and delightful things about Google and marry it with the source material from a Google Scholar. And that's what we're trying to do. So there needs to be easier ways to access that material in the ways that we're able to access more traditionally known uh, information that Google already does well. Beautiful. So um, yeah, that's that, that's great. I think you've uh, laid it out very well about on one side of the things you have this academic side of the world where you have a lot of this information, whether it's the Google Scholar or the other, WebMD's kind of thing. And on the other side, you have the very user intuitive, normal information. And you're trying to occupy the middle space of the gap, which is there. Yeah. Uh, but how do you differentiate yourself? Like, like you already mentioned, the Googles of the world, they already have uh, both sides of the things that you have briefly mentioned. And it might be easier for them to... Uh, merge or marry these things together and come up with this uh, middle approach. But how do yeah. you see or how do you differentiate and why do you think that is, uh, why do you think that consensus might be in a better shape to address some of these questions? Totally. Uh, and, you know, I think it gets back to what we talked about uh, 20 minutes ago, that their incentives are not set up in a way for them to build the type of product we're building. Uh, right, their their biggest blind spot is in delivering you reputable information about these types of topics uh, because it's antithetical to the business model. Uh, and you know it's the reason why Google Scholar is the same product it was 15 years ago, and they've put no resources to it. They have the best machine learning talent in the world, but that machine learning talent is spent optimizing algorithms to promote more money to be made from advertising-based business models. It's not being spent to build a kick-ass version of Google Scholar, which is what we're trying to do effectively. Uh, so I, I think the answer comes down to their incentives and, and the products that they're trying to build. And yeah, what what differentiates us differentiates us is is a few things. One, it is that difference in you know from Google, it's the difference in source material. We're only showing you peer-reviewed content; it's a curated data set. Uh, and then the difference between Google Scholar and also Google too is uh, outside of the featured snippet they show you. They're just delivering you links. And we think that these language models are going to enable uh, more of an answer search 
where these language models can do some information extraction for you, where it actually is finding you the answers. Uh, and you're not searching on the link document level that leaves all the work ahead of you. We're actually doing some of the work for you uh, and giving you those answers. Beautiful. So obviously this is where I think this inherent conflict between the interests of the big tech versus the user user's best interests. So that is where yeah. you're kind of uh, envisioning this. Is that right, uh, Eric? Certainly. And you know, the, uh, that's why we're operating with the subscription model. Uh, we're, we're free for now, but we will have paywalled features and we will have a freemium subscription model, but uh, that allows us to have the same incentives as our users. All we care about is giving them correct information. That's what we're trying to do as best we possibly can. Uh, and we can say that earnestly because we have no incentives to trick them into spending more time in their product than they have to because we need to sell more advertising space. We're not showing them any ads. Beautiful. That was more, that was supposed to be my next question, but you already answered it. How are you going to survive? And like you said that, okay, for now it's a freemium model, but I think you're, you will be going into this subscription-based model. Yeah, we have a bunch of premium, you know, we the functionality that is currently available right now, we hope to keep always free. Uh, and then we have a bunch of premium features that are being built that will make up the the paid subscription where you say, all right, I'm going to pay now $5.99 a month to get all these cool features on top uh, of the basic answer search functionality. And I'm pretty sure, Eric, I think um, uh, a follow-up to this would be, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of these enterprise businesses or professional businesses who might want to leverage these kind of services. So what, what uh, at a big picture or at a high level, what are these different professional areas that would benefit from these kind of uh, uh, science-based answers or these kind of consensus-based answers? Or yeah. 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 Um, and we've seen a lot of people already using our tool for, for them professionally. Uh, and, you know, the, the simplest way is any organization that uses research to make decisions or needs to share research with clients or colleagues. Uh, that is basically the unifying trend that we've seen being used. So just to give you examples, we've been used by individuals in their workplace, some people as journalists, helping them write more evidence-based content that they need to share with their users, been used by nutrition coaches, who need to share evidence about supplements or routine with their users. We've been used by healthcare consultants who, you know, they, they nicely fit this persona of somebody who uh, needs to engage with research, needs to have good evidence-based uh, information, but they're not really that trained to go through research themselves many times. Uh, so they fit a, that persona really nicely. We've been surprisingly used by by doctors and hospitals. Mm -hmm. And when we've done, when we've talked to those folks, um, the way that they're using the product is for questions they have or their patients have about things that they're not experts in themselves. So, you know, it's probably not needed to type in your question if it's something that's right in your wheelhouse of what you're doing. But the reality is many things you get asked about or need to know about on a, on a given day are not in your expertise. And we've done user interviews with doctors who have said, yeah, when I need to look something up quickly, now I don't type into Google, I can type it into your engine. That's awesome. That's exactly what, how we want it to be used. Uh, so to answer the question, organizations that use research to make decisions or need to share information, need to share research backed information with colleagues or clients. Uh, and, you know, that spans from academia to, yeah, nutrition coaches. And I'm pretty sure in future, I think you're, you will also be pulled into a lot of these different enterprise businesses as well, where they might, of course, they might have their own machine learning models, but they might also depend to some extent on these uh, science-based models that you, you folks are building into. Certainly. Yeah. Fair enough. So in this space, I believe you see uh, you're, you're kind of operating in this NLP-based uh, space where you're trying to uh, work, I, I wouldn't say uh, more science-based modeling approach that you're building, but I think it would still fall under this NLP-based or NLP-focused startups. But I know the the space is pretty crowded there. Why do you? Why do we? Uh, why are we seeing a lot of these uh, NLP-focused startups out there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the call that uh, these large language models are going to enable a giant wave of NLP startups to, to come about. Uh, and you know, there, there's so much more ability to do interesting things with these these models now than were just a few years ago. And this this latent knowledge that I talked about that these models come with enable a whole host of interesting applications. And then it's going to be the companies and the products that create them in the most differentiated and useful and thoughtful ways that will become successful companies. But it is, um, yeah, it's a, it's a giant arms race right now and, and it's a land grab. And uh, there's so many companies that are popping up using them for so many different things. Like there aren't that many doing exactly or doing something similar to what we're doing, but there's a million that do a million other things uh, like summarize the articles that you're reading for you or help you, you know, Grammarly is an NLP company that helps mm -hmm. you, that takes the text you're writing anywhere on your screen and helps you make recommendations to make it better or correct errors. There's, yeah, the copywriting tools. There's uh, brainstorming tools where you type in prompts and it'll spit you out ideas. And uh, there's so, you know, there's, there's tools that uh, take your text and turn it to speech and give you, mm -hmm. can allow you to put, you know, celebrities reading you your, your books to you. And that's all, you know, NLP focused, AI focused. Uh, so point being, there's so many different use cases. Uh, there's going to be so many different applications. Everyone's kind of just starting doing it. Uh, and it's all because of the advent of these language models, because they're so flexible because they come with that latent knowledge. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So there, there are a lot of applications around NLP, I think, uh, and I believe there will be a lot more impact of these latest innovations that are already happening in NLP. I agree. Uh, I know we have touched base on this, being um, search, being a solved game already, but, uh, and, but how is it still? Uh, I, I want to put this question in a little different way, but how can you uh, still disrupt this settled search search engine space and still come out a winner. I know you answered it saying that you yeah, come no. between the one end of the user uh, user intuitiveness and the other end of the Google scholarly thing, but do you want to add additional things there about the search being a solved game, but there is still a lot that could be done from the search standpoint. Yeah, yeah and I, I think I'd push back in the word solved. There's a clear winner in this space, but, and they've been a winner for a decade now and they're amazing in their own right. And they're gonna always continue to exist to be an, a giant amazing product. But we think that search is going to splinter in the next decade. And mm -hmm. the way that it's going to splinter is specific applications empowered by these language models that do things better, that do specific things better than Google. Because uh, Google can't solve all of our problems. Can solve many, can't solve all of them. Uh, and up until this point, Google is still the best answer, even for all those other things that it wasn't specifically designed to do, like doing research. But now that we have these language models where you can do these tasks actually better than them, we finally will have compelling enough offers to get people away from Google for specific tasks. And then if you can marry that, with privatized search, that's where we're really going to see the real innovation. And to paint the picture as to why that's the case, a company like DuckDuckGo, if you're familiar, mm -hmm. uh, it's privatized search. Uh, they effectively do nothing better than Google other than they just privatize your search data. Billion dollar company. So now what's going to happen is you're going to take that learning that people care about private data now more than ever and then pair it with something that Google that does actually better than Google in a certain things. And that's where we're going to see the real disruption in search. And that's why we want to occupy the lane that we're occupying because we know we're doing something that Google isn't designed to do and that we can do better with Google with uh, targeted applications using these, these large language models, and then marry that with ad-free privatized search. And that is where we'll start to see search really start to splinter in the next decade. Beautiful. So this is uh, an intersection of... Uh the different things Google is doing on the Google intuitive side or the Google user-centric search, whereas the Google scholarly search. And on top of that, you have this um, that go kind of personalized search. You're marrying all these things and adding additional science-based um, uh, explanations or science-based learning search, which I may call or uh, 
for a lack of a better word uh yeah and that is that is where i think the future is definitely tending to be because of all these different uh, innovations happening whether it is in the natural language processing or all these different kinds of language models coming into space coming into existence beautiful yeah 100% any any um, i know uh, we could talk hours together uh, when we talk about uh, search or uh, machine learning and ai but uh, i know i want to keep this conversation uh, under 45 minutes to 55 minutes so i would want to put this question to you uh, do you any key takeaways or uh, challenges that the current um, that the current users are facing and how it can be handled so if you can provide some kind of key takeaways that will be helpful for the audience as far as the users of our product right now and what we're trying to make better that we don't do well yet uh not only the users of your product the online search users yeah. okay yep so i want to give you one yeah, yeah want to give you one that, that, that is both that's something that um, we're starting to help try to solve, but we it's something we know we need to do, do better and we're working on features to do it and something we get told in user interviews and feature requests every day. Um, so it's it's your search engine helping you understand what you should care the most about. Uh, Google does nothing for you to do this right now. They give you a list of links and it's up to you to decide what is good. Again, it's sorted by backlinks and you know the page rank and who has the best seo and whatnot uh so it's completely up to you to decide what to care about and it's completely up to you to think about what you should trust in our current product while we have better source material because it's all peer-reviewed studies we're just showing you snippets from we're showing you answers pulled out of the papers and it's still has a lot of the same similarities where you know we're ranking it based on what answers your question best but it still is up to you to say which ones i care about and which ones i don't uh, so the next step in search and for us is to put in real objective quality indicators about the answers to help guide the user. You should care about this and here's why. Uh, and this is why this is good research. This is why this is likely to be the right answer to your question. So it's pulling out additional information from, for us, it's pulling out additional information from the studies to say, this is really well-designed research has a huge sample size. They blinded the study. It was done with no external funding. You should care about that result. And we show you all these pieces of evidence as to why. I think there's analogous things in other types of search as well, uh, where I think that is where search is going to do some of the synthesis for you and helping you got helping guide the user. Here's information. Here's the answer you're looking for, and here's why you should care about it. Mm -hmm. uh, an interesting example of this is uh, Neva is another privatized search engine. Mm -hmm. And I believe they just released a feature, really cool, and we're going to borrow from this in our own ways. I mean, it's non-competitive. Uh, but if you search, uh, like, for – I am i don't know all the details. I just, like, saw some tweets about it and looked at some screen grabs. If you search for, like, political content, they allow you to do some, like, toggling or they have indicators about the biases of the publications – like this is a left-leaning publication. This is a right-leaning publication generally. And they have these little cool like little indicators on it. Uh, that's a great example uh, of the same thing I'm talking about in a different world where it's, you know, political opinion blogs, not scientific research, but it's the same type of idea. Using NLP and AI and synthesis to help guide a user and what they should care about and what they should be aware of. And I imagine they're doing that for the exact same reasons that I just said. Beautiful. Beautiful. Amazing. I think I like the way you have uh, uh, rounded off all these perspectives and how, and, and and for me, I think it looks very exciting. The future looks very exciting with all these different innovations happening in the NLP space and using these science-based research and science-based models, how you can use and make the search much more useful and much more uh, intuitive for the end user or even for building professional applications because currently what happens is that we hardly go past the first page in google search i think that yeah. is where i think uh, many of the problems lie yeah but beautiful i like uh yeah so thank you for your time uh, eric do you want to add any uh, closing closing statements 
yeah, thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. And if this was interesting to any listeners, definitely check us out at consensus.app. It is free to create an account and search right now. If you've ever wondered what does the research actually say about my questions, uh, that's what we've built consensus to help you do. So sign up, execute a few searches, share evidence with your friends, win some arguments, and uh, yeah, hopefully it can be useful for you guys in your life. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for your time. Yep. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. Let us now wrap up this podcast 37. Also the last podcast in this year 2022. I would first like to thank our guest, Mr. Eric Olson from Consensus for taking his valuable time and spending some use, uh, interesting conversation on the topic of uh, misinformation and disinformation and how you can combat this. Yes, we talked about uh, the different aspects of how AI can be leveraged uh, in the context of uh, combating the misinformation and disinformation. And I was, in fact, uh, uh, surprised to know that uh, the way the search industry or the search mechanism is getting disrupted uh, there, there are a lot more good things that are going to happen. Of course, the way the information, the validated information can be provided to the validated users, which would really make sense in this uh, era where you see a lot of misinformation or disinformation going on around. And we see a lot of these uh, uh, complaints going on, whether it is the economic or socioeconomic and political uh, uh, discussions. We also have noticed how uh, Elon Musk has took over Twitter and what are the things that are happening uh, with uh, the way the validation mechanism is happening for the users. So in that context as well, if you look into this conversation, it is very interesting the way how the whole search industry is getting disrupted in the context of AI. I hope uh, I, I personally learned a lot in this conversation. I hope uh, this was useful to you as well. For any further questions, feel free to reach out to me on my social media handles, uh, LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, my social media handle, Raghubanda on LinkedIn or RK Banda on Twitter. You can also reach out directly to my guest, Eric Carlson. I will be tagging him on the LinkedIn media post. As always, uh, you could find further information or a lot of other podcasts that are available by going into the website xtrawai.com, extraai.com. And there are a whole lot of other podcasts and conversations that I had uh, with different guests. As always, feel free to send any feedback uh, about the upcoming conversations or the different topics that you might want me to bring about. I'm looking forward to connecting back in the new year 2023 with many more interesting and engaging conversations. So stay tuned. Have a wonderful new year 2023. And finally, I would also like to thank you all, the audience, for having this continued engagement and providing the feedback on these various topics. Happy predicting the future with AI technologies and connect with you again in 2023. Thank you and bye-bye now.